And as you're being seated this morning, would you please grab your copy of God's Word? And would you turn with me once again to the book of Revelation? So we're in the middle of a series working our way verse by verse through this book. And we're in Revelation chapter 5 this morning. And we'll be looking at verses 1 to 7. might not be your typical Christmas text, but I'm convinced that every text is a Christmas and Easter and Good Friday text, and so this is what we're going to be on this morning. So Revelation 5, I'm going to read verses 1 to 7, so hear the word of the Lord this morning. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on the preaching and hearing of it. Our gracious heavenly fathers, we come to your word this morning. We pray that we'd be mindful that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Lord, help us to understand your word, to live in light of your word, and to see more of the beauty and wonders of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, when you think about uh, the future, when you think about what tomorrow is going to bring and beyond that, what it has in store for you, how do you view the future? Perhaps many of you right now view the immediate future with a sense of childlike anticipation. Right? Most of you kids, you walk by the Christmas tree, you see the presents decorated, you see the stockings, and you cannot wait for that moment when your parents finally say that most wonderful phrases. You can now open your presents, and the wrapping paper goes everywhere. Or perhaps you view the future with a sense of fascination. You're curious to see what new discoveries, what new inventions, what new advancements are going to be made. You know, when am I going to get my self-driving car? When can I trade in that robot vacuum for a robot that cooks and does the laundry. (laughs) Or perhaps more likely, you view the future with a sense of worry and anxiety. When is the doctor gonna call back with the results? How much is the bill gonna be and how are we going to pay for it? Where is our culture headed and how bad is it gonna be once we get there? What about the next pandemic? What about the next recession? What about, and the list goes on and on. Or when will the robot vacuums take on consciousness and then take over? (laughs) Anticipation, fascination, worry, that might describe your feelings because that's often our instinctive and reflexive response toward looking at the future. But we need to ask a more thoughtful and intentional question. As Christians, what should characterize how we view the future? What does God's word have to say about how we, should un, how we should view the unfolding drama of history. And we need to ask this question because not only is our instinctive reflexive response often misguided, 
But the answers that the culture gives to that question are often very unbiblical and unhelpful. From one side of the culture, we are fed an extremely pessimistic view of the future. We are on the brink of a dystopian nightmare. And if we don't limit our carbon emissions, we don't start eating bugs, the ice caps are going to melt and we're all going to drown. On the other extreme, we're fed an exceedingly optimistic view of the future. If we just believe more in the power of our dreams, if we just won this election, if we just discovered that cure, then the gates of Eden would fling open once again and heaven would be brought down to earth by us. But both of those answers to the question, how should we view the future, look with a wrong perspective at the wrong problems and the wrong solutions. So we need to look into God's word that we might look at the, fu- at the future through a proper biblical lens. And so that's where we come to Revelation 5 this morning. In Revelation 5, what John does for us, as he's done the last number of weeks as we've been in Revelation 4, is he brings us into the very throne room of God so that we can see earth from a heavenly perspective. And in this particular case, that we might gain a heavenly perspective on our earthly future. Who holds the keys to the future and its plans and its promises and its unfolding in his hands? So as we unpack Revelation 5, 1 to 7 this morning, we're going to see how this text provides us with three answers to the question, how should we as Christians view the future, the unfolding of the drama of history? Well, the first answer to that question is we as Christians should view the future with hope because God holds our future in his sovereign hand. We should view the future with hope because God holds the future in his sovereign hand. Look with me at verse 1 in Revelation 5. So what John first sees in Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. So the central image of Revelation 4 was the throne. Now coming to Revelation 5, the central image is going to be the scroll that is found in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And this scroll shows up over and over and over again in Revelation 5. Just look there. Note verse 1, the scroll shows up. Verse two, again, verse three, verse four, verse five, verse seven, verse eight, verse nine, the scroll shows up over and over again. Eight times in this chapter alone, it's mentioned. Now, as we learned as young kids, when your parents repeat something over and over and over again, kids, it means you're either not listening or it's really important or both. Well, in this case, the Bible's repetition of this is its form of bolding, italicizing, underlining something to say, this is really important. Don't skip over it. So we know the scroll is really important because John repeats it over and over again. But what exactly is this scroll? What's its symbolism? What's its significance for us? Well, as you can imagine with Revelation, there are many views, right? I said last week, all you have to do is take all the numbers of Revelation, add them together, and that's how many views there are about the book of Revelation. We've come to the right place, okay? (laughs) Some argue that this scroll is the Lamb's book of life in which are written all the names of the redeemed people of God throughout all of history. Now, I think that's possible, but I think that book shows up later in Revelation and it seems to be distinguished from this scroll. It's a different one. Some argue that this is a covenant document like you might read about with Abraham and Moses and David. And the writing on both sides refers to the covenant curses and the covenant blessings. I think that view gets closer to what the scroll is, but I think the scroll actually includes something even bigger, grander, more broad than just a covenant document between God and his people. In my view, this scroll represents God's title deed to history, God's will and testament to all of the rest of the unfolding of history. You could say that 
This scroll is God's plan and purpose for the conclusion of history and the consummation of his kingdom. Think about the Lord's Prayer for a moment. In the Lord's Prayer, we're taught to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Well, this scroll is, in a sense, what the answer to that prayer is going to look like. And the fact that that prayer has an answer because it details the coming of God's kingdom in its final and forever form, and it details the definitive execution of God's will on earth as it is in heaven. So what, what the final act is to a play. Think of you know the final act in which all the very strands of the drama and the characters and the tension comes together in perfect resolution. This scroll is to all of human history. Or in literature, what the last battle is to the Chronicles of Narnia, this scroll is to all of reality and all of the unfolding of the final moments of human history. And this is not the first time this scroll has shown up in the storyline of the Bible. So in Ezekiel, chapter 2 and 3, it seems that we get a glimpse of this same scroll. Ezekiel describes a scroll that has writing on the front and on the back, just like this one. And he describes the contents of that scroll that he maybe seems to get a brief glimpse of as filled with lamentation and weeping and woe. But then Ezekiel eats the scroll. Ezekiel does a lot of strange things, and this is one of them. He eats the scroll, and he says that it tasted sweet as honey. So Ezekiel gives us this dual description. It's filled with lamentation and weeping and woe, but then he ate it, and it tasted sweet as honey. And what that seems to indicate is that there are two primary facets to this unfolding of God's plan for the conclusion of history and the consummation of a kingdom. Judgment and deliverance. Justice and the final ultimate display of his grace. And perhaps these two facets correspond to the writing on both sides of the document. Perhaps one side is unfolding what God's execution of ultimate justice looks like. What the finality of that phrase, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, will look like. And the other side unfolds God's plan for bringing to full fruition and completion all the redemption, all the blessings, all the benefits won for us in Christ. That that phrase in Ephesians 2.7, that in the coming ages he will show to us the immeasurable riches of his kindness to us in Christ. That's what this is detailing. And the scroll also seems to be alluded to at the end of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. And there's an angelic messenger who's telling Daniel all these things you've seen as you've kind of peered into the conclusion of history and the unfolding of God's kingdom in its final form. He says this to Daniel. He says, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed. So that we have those seals until the time of the end. So it's as if the angel is telling Daniel, from your perspective right now in history, God's kingdom will come. His perfect justice will be done. The final deliverance will be delivered, but it's not yet. We're not there yet. So seal it up until the time is done. But now, that scroll with its seals in Daniel's day that was told to be sealed up is being brought out in John's day because the time of the end of the ages has dawned in Christ. And so it's as if God's people have been asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Have you ever been on a road trip and you have other little people in the car, you know what that's like? And God's people have been asking that for centuries and centuries. And now through this throne room vision, God is saying by his prophet John, we're getting close. We're coming down the final stretch. We're almost home. We're nearly there. And so the fact that this scroll is in the right hand of the one seated on the throne 
That even communicates something. It communicates that God is the rightful author of all of the details of the scroll, and he is the owner of this document. It is his plans authored by his wisdom. And so that means the unfolding of history, the development and events of the future are not in the hands of blind luck. They're not in the hands of cold, impersonal fate and destiny. The, the, the future of the unfolding drama of history is not in the hands of the principles of karma. It is not at the mercy of the next election or the next Supreme Court decision. It is in the hands of the one seated on the throne. Now, if it was in anyone else's hands, if that were the case, we would have reason to fret and be concerned. But dear Christian, you of all people can look towards the horizon of history with hope because the future is in the hands of one who is infinitely wise. Only of God can it be said, he does all things well. He knows all the best ends and he knows all the best means to all of those ends. Who has been his counselor or who has taught him knowledge? As high as the heavens are above the earth, so far are his ways beyond our ways. The future is in the hands of one who is infinitely wise. And not only that, he's absolutely sovereign. He not only has the wisdom to know all the ends and the best means to those ends, but he has the infinite ability to carry them out. This is not one of those situations where you get in the car, passenger, seat of a car, with someone who knows directions to the destination. But once they start driving, you wonder, will I ever live getting to that destination because they're a bad driver? Who is like the Lord? To whom shall we compare him? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Think about this, kids. God has never for one second ever experienced frustration. For one second, there has never been a moment in all of history, eternity past, eternity future, where God has been frustrated. The Lord has never for one moment thought, I should come up with plan B just in case. Mm -hmm. He is absolutely sovereign. And King Nebuchadnezzar found this out the hard way when he was humbled and said, no one can stop the Lord's hand or say to him, what have you done? And the future is filled with hope for believers because it is in the hands of one who is unceasingly faithful. As Charles Spurgeon said, God writes with a pen that never blots. He speaks with a tongue that never slips and he acts with a hand that never fails. Every promise he speaks is true. Every plan he makes comes to full fruition. It never wilters or wastes away. And is this not what we reflect on and celebrate at Christmas time? Right? We, we look back and we see that God in his faithfulness sent his son, pleased as man with man to dwell. And that we look back and see that God in his grace did not spare his own dearly loved son. He sent him and he did not spare him. So we look back and we see that so that we can look forward with hope knowing that if God did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things we need today and tomorrow and the day after that and all the way until the conclusion of history and the consummation of his kingdom comes in all its fullness so we can have hope. Well, second, Christians should view the future with a sense of realism because no mere creature holds the key to the future. By realism, I mean that we need to have a properly 
We need to have properly calibrated expectations regarding all the promises and all the perils of the future that the world throws at us. I mentioned a little bit, some of those in our, my introduction. Because at one and the same time, our world tells us that we are both the problem and the solution of the future. It's both all of our fault and it's all up to us. Even though one perspective is incredibly pessimistic and the other incredibly optimistic, they both have this in common. Supposedly, we hold the keys to the future. Or to change it to a sports illustration, the ball is in our hands and we can either carry it safely into the end zone, score a touchdown and usher in a utopia, or we can fumble the ball and we bring in a dystopian nightmare. And yet Revelation 5 shows us that this perspective thinks too much of man and too little of God. Notice at the very outset of verse 1 that the scroll is sealed with seven seals. So this introduces tension in the drama. There's, there's suspense in heaven, as it were. It presents a problem because if the scroll contains God's plan and his purpose for the conclusion of history, for the consummation of his kingdom, then the fact that it is sealed up represents the fact that to unfold it, to execute those plans, right now it's locked up. It's shut away. Unless someone can open them. Unless someone can break those seals and execute those plans. Well, that's exactly what question the angel poses in verse 2. Look there with me. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who has the proper authority who has the right ability to open and execute the plan and purpose of God for the unfolding of human history. Perhaps you know of the story of the sword and the stone from King Arthur, maybe either through the book or through, through Disney. Well, you know the story. In the midst of a churchyard, there's an anvil with a sword stuck in it, right near where this great tournament of champions is going on. And the prophecy regarding the sword is that whoever pulls the sword from the stone is the rightful king of all England. It's all the knights throughout all the kingdom. They line up in their mighty, noble, courageous outfits. And yet, not a single knight who's come to that tournament of champions is able to even budge that sword from the stone. Well, that's similar to the situation in verse 3 of Revelation 5. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So verse three is saying is that they looked everywhere. They looked over every square inch of the universe and no creature was able to say that they were worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. Not one of the 24 elders we just saw in Revelation four, not one of those four living creatures in their might and their majesty, not one of the myriad of angels in heaven, not one single creature on this earth was worthy to open that scroll. And so John is watching this unfold. It's as if John is standing there in anticipation of seeing that person who's going to come and take the scroll and open it because his hope is resting on the unfolding of that scroll. And then with each failed attempt, John goes from disappointment to discouragement to despair. The line is empty and still no one is found that is worthy. And so look how he reacts in verse 4. And I began to weep. And this is not your average weeping. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Why is John so overcome 
with weeping. Is he just an emotional guy? He's to see a therapist? Not at all. John has just from, in a moment, gone from the heights of hope to the depths of despair. He's seen the scroll that has all the plans for the consummation of God's kingdom, and he's filled with hope, and yet, as if an avalanche is just triggered, he sees that no one so far is worthy to open it. So hope has been dashed, taken away from him. John is in despair, and he's weeping, because as one author pointed out, for a brief moment in time, John catches a glimpse of what it would have been like and what it would have felt like if God had not sent his son. John catches a glimpse of what it would have been like if God would have sent his son, but then spared his son. If Jesus would have answered those mocking jeers from the crowd, you saved others, why don't you save yourself? John catches in a brief moment a glimpse of what that reality would have felt like. He weeps because in that moment, it seems for a second that sins are not forgiven. Death is not defeated. Justice will never be executed. Grace will never be provided. Our fallen human natures will never be transformed. Our tears will never be wiped away because there is no one worthy to open the scroll. So his despair and his weeping in this moment is in a sense an illustration of Psalm 146 verses 3 and 4. Put not your trust in princes, in sons of men in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. It's also an illustration of Jeremiah 17, 5. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose hearts turn away from the Lord. There's always a danger with us of misdirected and misguided hope to turn away from the Lord to other things, to someone or something else for our hope. Instead of looking to the Lord who holds our ultimate hope for the future, we get fearful, we get anxious, we worry. And so we start to panic and think, I need to find someone or something else that holds the key to a safe and comfortable future. Perhaps it's the politician, the medical provision, the technological advancement, the financial accomplishment, on and on the list could go. And John's despair and weeping is a way of telling us that if we look to those things because we think that in them they can bear our hope or hold the key to our future, they will always disappoint us and leave us in despair. They were never meant to fulfill that capacity. So as Christians, we need to have a sense of realism about all that the world holds before us and says this, this is the key to your safe and comfortable future. We need to know that it's a snake oil sale. Yes, we should care about and be involved in things like politics. We know that God has ordained government for the good of general creation. It's a common grace gift, but we should know that no election, no candidate, no form of government will ever usher in the kingdom of God. Right? You hear it every, every time. This is the most important election of our lifetime, and it's going to be the same thing next time. And yes, you should care about and be involved in those things, but know its limitations. Yes, we should praise God for medical and scientific advancements. We should wisely use them and steward them for our health, but we should do so knowing that they will never ever remove the sting of death. They will never ever overthrow the curse of death. We should avail ourselves of all of God's common grace gifts and use them and enjoy them and delight in them, always keeping in mind 
that they were never intended to bear the weight of our hope for the future. They do not hold the key to our future. So we need to realize, as John does, our true comfort and security regarding the future is found in no mere creature. We must look elsewhere. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. Christian, you should have a sense of eternal comfort about the future because Christ is worthy to open the scroll. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, we see that the suspense in heaven is finally broken. John's weeping is told to come to an abrupt end. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So John thought the line of potentially worthy candidates was empty, that it was done. He thought that the search for this one had been completely exhausted. And yet as he's drowning in despair, one of the elders comes to comfort him. One of those elders representing the the church of God throughout all of human history in heaven comes to him and does what the church would always do, points to Christ. And he says, weep no more. The line is not empty. The search is not over, John. There is one more candidate and he is worthy. He says, look, John, look there. There is a candidate who is like all the other ones and yet gloriously unlike all the other candidates. Why is this candidate worthy? Well, the elder tells us. One, because he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. So this is a reference to the blessing that Jacob, towards the end of his life, pronounced over his son Judah in Genesis 49. This is from Genesis 49, 8 to 10. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So it's it's part of the prophecy that Jacob pronounces over Judah. And it has many different images and metaphors that kind of mix and mingle together, but they all have this in common. They picture a victorious king who establishes his kingdom by successfully subduing all his enemies. And the way that a lion features into that is that lions, as you know, are considered the king of the jungle, right? And there's a reason they're called the king of the jungle. They have stealth, they have speed, they have strength. And when they hunt their prey and they get their prey, which they often do, they eat and feast like kings. And you've seen it on those YouTube videos or you know one of those nature shows. It is something to behold. You, there's a reason that lions sit at the top of the predator chart and they're on nobody's prey chart. Lions rule. And so this blessing of kingly victory is pronounced over Judah. And as redemptive history moves on, it becomes this anticipation and hope of what the Messiah is going to come and do, what he's going to be like. He's going to be one who comes to establish his kingdom by subduing his enemies like a lion does its prey. So the elder is saying to John, John, that promise we've been waiting for, Genesis 49, there he is, right there. The lion of the tribe of Judah is come. He is worthy. And he's also worthy because he's the root of David. So Isaiah 11 gives us a prophecy about what the future of David's royal dynasty 
is going to look like. And this prophecy about David's dynasty comes at a time when the stock value of David's dynasty was really low. Okay, so it was kind of like the Bitcoin of its day. It had humble beginnings, high heights, and then it was crumbling. It was falling deep and down. Because the kingdom is divided. There's infighting. There's a serious coming. And Babylon's coming in the future. And so it does not look good for the Davidic kingdom. And yet during that time, Isaiah prophesies that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. It's David's father. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So it's the picture of a tree that was once grand and glorious, that gave shade and beauty to everything. It's been chopped down to nothing. But there's still some roots there. And from those roots, a shoot, a little stump is going to come up. And from that stump, the tree is going to grow and thrive and bear fruit again. So what the elder is saying is, look, John, there is great David's greater son. There is the root and the shoot from David's line. He is worthy. He's going to establish a kingdom that will never end and sit on a throne that will never be vacant. He is worthy because he has conquered. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Because John hears this from the elder. But when he finally turns to look and see the lion-like, enemy-subduing, kingdom-establishing king, notice what he sees in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. I saw a lamb, not just any lamb, a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Do you catch what what John, he hears about a roaring lion and he sees a lamb. He hears and is told about the lion of the tribe of Judah and then he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now, I don't know about you, but I cannot think of two more opposite animal images that you want to combine, right? Whenever kids are pretending to be animals, nobody's pretending to be a lamb let alone a lion-like lamb or a lamb-like lion. So what are we to make of this? And how do these two things fit together? Well, I think part of what John is trying to show is that in the person of Christ, the one mediator between God and man, these seemingly opposite qualities come together in such perfect harmony that they go to show the unique excellency and majesty of Christ that is unlike any other. The unique majesty of Christ is displayed in a kind of both-end majesty. He is both the one through whom all things were created. He sustains and upholds all things by the word of his power, and yet he's the one who stooped down to be born into a manger, who stooped down to wash disciples' feet. He is both the one wise enough to stump and silence the scribes in their attempts to thwart him, and the one humble enough to welcome and spend time with little children. He's both the one who justly rebukes Peter saying, get behind me, Satan. And the one who graciously restores Peter and says, go and feed my sheep. He's both the one who stilled the storm with a word after he was woken up from his nap. And he is the one who remained silent and refused to save himself while his enemies crucified him. He is worthy because in him the majesty of a lion and the meekness of a lamb meet together in perfect harmony, unlike any other. But also placing these together, these two opposites, lion and lamb, 
We're meant to see how there was a gloriously unexpected way that this lion came and conquered. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who has conquered. How has he conquered? The lamb standing as though slain. He conquered not by overthrowing and defeating the Roman guards who had to arrest him, but by silently allowing them to take him away. He conquered not by showing Pilate and Herod who was really in charge, by silently submitting to the wrongful charges that they placed on him. He conquered not by displaying the power of his justice to the soldiers who whipped him and the crowds who mocked him, but by silently enduring every single one of the injustices that they did to him. He conquered not by entering Jerusalem to wear a crown of glory and sit on a throne in power, but by silently, patiently suffering while wearing a crown of shame and sitting and hanging on a cross in weakness. Jesus conquered by exercising all of his lion-like power and sovereignty to be a lamb-like substitute. That's how the lamb conquered. So along with John, we can be comforted and weep no more because Christ is worthy to take and open the scroll because he has the majesty of a lamb or a lion and the meekness of a lamb conjoined together in perfect harmony, the one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. Let's pray.